Okay, uh, I think we're all <clears throat> ready to begin down here. Good afternoon. Welcome to the London School of Economics and Political Science. Welcome to the LSE, the seventh LSE Space for Thought Literary Festival, which has been running all week. Today is the last day, and the theme has been foundations. And the question that we're discussing now is, is the novel of ideas an outdated genre? Is there still life in the novel of ideas? Are we witnessing its resurgence? What answers can it offer us in the 21st century? Now, I'll introduce our three speakers in just a moment, but uh, I'm afraid it's, it's housekeeping time, so we'll quickly run through those things. Uh, my name's Michael Keynes. I'm an editor on the Times Literary Supplement. Uh, we're going to have our speakers speaking first in turn for maybe 10 minutes each, and then we're going to talk amongst ourselves for a little bit. And then it's time for questions um, from the floor, points. Um, I hope that lots of you want to speak. Um, but please, of course, be considerate and remember that if there are lots of people who want to speak, uh, let's not have any long speeches. Let's try and keep the discussion moving. Let's take lots of uh, points if we can. Um, the event is being recorded uh, in the hope it can be released as um, a podcast. Uh, so remember that. There'll be roving mics coming around, so wait for a mic and say who you are when you speak. Um, we don't ask that you turn your phones off, but please put them on silent. Uh, if you are the sort of Twittering person, there is a hashtag. I think it's LSE, hash LSE Lit Fest. That's the one to use, I'm told. Um, there will be a reception after us, please, please join us for that, and there will be a chance to uh, buy the author's books and even possibly get them signed if you're brave. Um, we're going to start with um, first speaker on my right, Professor Peter Boxall of the University of Sussex, who's the author um, of a critical introduction called 21st Century Fiction, and he has a new book coming out this year called, I think it's The Value of the Novel, is that right? Yeah. Um, on my left, we have Jenny Erdle, who's followed by two novelists. Jenny Erdle sitting on my left, the author of uh, Missing Shade of Blue. I hope we'll be talking about that soon. And Andrew O'Hagan, editor-at-large for the LRB. If you haven't read his LRB pieces, my goodness, where have you been? You must read them. They're fantastic. And his new novel is out this month, The Illuminations. Um, we're going to start, I think, with Peter. Would you like to begin? Yeah. Um, I have maybe less than ten minutes. Um, just some, some very, very loose, vague thoughts about uh, this question. Is, is, there a, is there a novel of ideas now? What kind of conditions make su such a thing, a, a novel of ideas, a philosophical novel, um, possible or less possible now than it was in the past? Um, and I want to start with a sort of rather negative uh, view, uh, maybe informed by a recent uh, Guardian article by Will Self. Uh, lots of people read this article. The, the <coughs> novel is dead, this time it's real. Do, do, how many people read, read that article in the audience? A few. Well, I'm quite, <laughs> quite pleased. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, in fact, Will Self blurbed your book, didn't he? Um, the Missing. Yes. Yeah, saying that, that, that Andrew O'Hagan is one of the few people who writes something that can be genuinely new. Um, yeah, that was 20 years that ago. That was 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but uh, in, in 2015, uh, Will Self claims that the, that the novel, and by extension, I think, or maybe he's thinking very specifically of the novel of ideas, is saying it's dead and it's really dead now, as, not, as opposed to being you know, perhaps dead in the past. Um, and I wanted to start just by, by looking at what Will Self has to say about why the novel is dead. Um, as a way of trying to think my way around it. I, I, as a sneak preview, I will come to the point where I think the novel of ideas is not remotely dead. 
um, which may not be uh, a consensus on this panel, or at least it's no more dead now than it's always been. Uh, <laughs> those, two, those two things may be the same, they may be different. Um, so this is, this is Will Self uh, writing a few months ago. Uh, he says, the, the, form, the, form, the novel form should have been laid to rest at about the time of Finnegan's Wake, he says. Um, but in fact, it's continued to stalk the corridors of our minds for a further three quarters of a century. Uh, many fine novels have been written during this period, but I would contend that these were, taking the long view, zombie novels, uh, instances of an undead for art form that wouldn't lie down. Um, so for, for self, the, the novel has a rather short life, uh, probably from somewhere uh, in, in the 18th century to somewhere at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, and it finally dies with Finnegan's Wake and sort of crawls around like a zombie for a while, uh, with the odd uh, exception <laughs> from Andrew from 1995. Um, and, and what Will Self says about this is that he, he thinks that this is partly to do with massive changes to the way that the public sphere works. Um, and that with the loss of privacy and with uh, being all hooked up to the internet and the Twitterers that are here twittering, um, telling everyone what's going on, <laughs> if anyone is, I doubt it so far, um, uh, mean that we don't, we don't have that capacity to stand back from the culture anymore and critique it. Um, and it's this loss of private, <coughs> private self, the private mind, the space of private reflection uh, that has led to this zombification of the novel where it, where it sort of wants the kind of forms of critical idea-based um, reflection and detachment that we associate with the form um, but, but this is no longer available for self. Um, and I think that whilst I, whilst I sort of strenuously disagree with everything that self says in this article, I think you, there is a, an effect that you can trace through uh, the, the contemporary novel, um, a sense of zombiness, a sense of how precarious the novel form is, um, and an example might be something like the late fiction of Philip Roth. I don't know how many people here have read the, the later, uh, later novels of Philip Roth, which are... You're, you're, a, you're a reader of Roth. They're, they're, they're sort of obsessed with the death or the exhaustion of the imagination. Um, uh, and there's one, one particular novel I think is a very powerful example of Roth's, Roth's late style, um, a novel called Exit Ghost, uh, and this novel really suggests that the, that the novel form itself, the, the form which is being extended by Exit Ghost, uh, has become ghostly as a revenant of some kind. Um, and there's a, there's a very wonderful moment in Exit Ghost where a character who's really speaking for the novel, I think, for the novel of ideas, a character called Amy Bellet, um, writes a furious letter to the New York Times uh, denouncing the public culture, denouncing the, the culture that Smith, that, that self represents, um, as as a, a culture that has lost those forms of privacy and also maybe forms of authenticity that would allow us to have something like a novel of idea. And she writes to the New York Times. She said that um, her, her, her contention is that serious fiction. And this is a quote: um, "Serious fiction eludes paraphrase and description." and hence requires thought. And I, I, we'll, we'll come back perhaps in the discussion to this notion of serious fiction eluding paraphrase and what, what, what fiction 
how fiction can speak in a language of its own. Um, but for Belek, this language, the, the notion of a fiction that eludes paraphrase and speaks in its own language, is no longer possible because of the culture of literary journalism and also the culture of the contemporary <coughs> university, the culture of the contemporary public sphere, that has swamped these possibilities for reflection. And this is, this is her letter um, to the New York Times. If I had, she says, something like Stalin's power, I would silence all those who write about imaginative writers, which would put many of us out of a job. I'd forbid all public discussion of literature in newspapers, magazines and scholarly periodicals. I'd forbid all instruction in literature in every grade school, high school, college and university in the country. I'd outlaw reading groups and internet book chatter and police the bookstores to be certain that no clerk ever spoke to a customer about a book and that the customers did not dare to speak to one another. I'd leave the readers alone with the books to make of them what they will on their own. I'd do this for as many centuries as are, as are required to detoxify the society of your poisonous nonsense. <laughs> this is, uh, this is Bellet Bell writing from within a novel that's struggling to, go, in a ghostly way, survive um, the kind of death that Self writes about in 2015. Um, but I've put this... I've given this kind of account of the novel living on after its own death, partly to suggest that that this is maybe not really the death of the novel of ideas, but the condition that the novel of ideas has always had to live with. Um, and I think that, that the peculiar condition of the novel imagination or, or novel thinking is that it's always eluded paraphrase. Um, it's always <coughs> required uh, and imagined a public sphere that isn't available. So the fact that, that we feel now that a public sphere... Uh, isn't available with which to have the kind of discussion about ideas that Will Self requires in that article, is not, I think, a sudden collapse of the conditions that allow for novel thinking to, to take place, um, but something that has gone in tandem with the novel, which is always a little bit ahead of itself, um, and always living a little bit beyond the conditions that allow it. Um, and the person I, I think I want to to draw attention to in thinking about the history of this uh, ghostliness to the novel imagination is Henry James, who, who writes articles on the death of the novel uh, in the late 1890s. Um, and I want, to, I want to read from a very wonderful novella, Henry James' novella from 1893, called The Middle Years. Um, and this, this novella, I think performs the death of the novel as the precursor to its continuing existence. Um, what happens in the middle years is a guy who's dying, um, a, a, a novelist who's dying called Denkham, and as he's preparing to die, he receives the, the first edition of his latest novel. Um, uh, he reads it and realises it's terribly good and thinks that perhaps what he needs to do is live a bit longer <laughs> because, because after all he's, he's a bit better than he thought he was um, but the, the, the sort of beauty of this novella is that you realise that the, that the potential the possibility of the novel imagination um, is born at the moment that you recognise that what allows it is dying so this is from, this is from the middle years he had forgotten, Denkham the novelist thinks to himself he had forgotten during his illness the work of the previous year. So he's finished a novel and it's entirely gone out of his head until it arrives in the post and he opens it up. 
He had forgotten during his illness the work of the previous year, but what he had chiefly forgotten, that it was extraordinarily good. He lived once more into his story and was drawn down, as by a siren's hand, to where, in the dim underworld of fiction, the great glazed tank of art, strange, silent subjects float. Um, I think that's a, a phrase that we, that we might come back to. Strange, silent subjects float. What he saw so intensively today, what he felt as a nail driven in, was that only now, at the very last, had he come into possession of his gifts. It had taken too much of his life to produce too little of his art. The art had come, but it had come after everything else. At such a rate, a first existence was too short, long enough only to collect material so that to fructify, to use the material, one must have a second age, an extension. This extension was what poor Denkham sighed for. As he turned to the last leaves of his volume, he murmured, ah, for another go, ah, for a better chant. Um, and I'm going to stop because I've probably t- t- taken my ten minutes, but I, I think that if we're thinking about the possibility of the existence of the novel of ideas, it's this um, extension, this sense that the strange, silent subject of the novel is always still to come, that we need to, to guide us. And we, we need to understand that the public sphere is differently constituted now than it was when James was writing, when Joyce was writing. Um, but to think that this signals the death of the novel is to misunderstand the fact, I think, that the novel has always called to its own afterlife. Uh, and I'll stop there. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Peter. That's wonderful. Uh, so, it's the critic's fault, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to ask Jenny to take over. Um, I'm going to go to the podium. Not because I did get a big lecture, but because I don't want you to stare at my bandaged toe. Um, we, agree, we agreed this beforehand um, well the answer to the headline question in, in my view is that yes I, I think there is life in the novel of ideas and I very much hope there continues to be life in the novel of ideas um, it has a slight look of an endangered species at the moment, but bear with me. There, there was a time when even to speak of the novel of ideas was to, would have seemed tautological. Um, novels in earlier centuries absolutely teemed with ideas. If you take Russian literature, particularly in the second half of the 19th century, say, it was absolutely awash with difficult problems Uh, from the problem of evil in the Brothers Karamazov to um, the problem of free will in in war and peace. And in France, a century before that, Voltaire had offered up his Conte Philosophique um, as a way of satirising the philosophical issues of the day. And this included Candide, for example, which was his um, hilarious and uh, but scathing attack on Leibniz's theory that ours is the best of all possible worlds. And in many ways, um, France has continued with this <coughs> tradition of existentialist fiction through Proust and Camus and Sartre and so on. And even today, uh, the novel of ideas is still alive and very well in France in a way that perhaps it isn't here. Um, for some reason, which uh, I'm never terribly sure of, slim intellectual novels and 
the occasional fat one, still, still do it for the French. Whereas we tend to look upon them with a degree of um, suspicion or, or even disdain. Um, it's not hard to see why the novel and ideas are not exactly perfect bedfellows, um, particularly ideas in their abstract form, because they're just, well, so abstract. Um, Abstract ideas tend to be set out in a particular way, you know, first A, then B, in order to establish C. And this is absolutely fatal for the novel, a complete death to the novel, which is so dependent on imagination rather than this analytical style, this precision. Um, but when it comes to moral ideas, then things look a good deal more promising. Um, because moral philosophy, moral ideas have always addressed how to live, how best to live. And how to live is quintessentially um, the concern of what might be called serious fiction. If only Plato had seen it that way, um, he might not have banned his poets from the Republic. Um, but he, he regarded the poets, who were the forerunners of the novelists, of course, with, um, with deep suspicion, they, because they dealt in uh, dangerous things like emotion, fear and pity and sorrow, and so on. And they didn't have the right kind of knowledge. It wasn't pure enough. And so he threw them out. Um, and although uh, his pupil Aristotle took a less rigid view, nevertheless, um, the platonic ideal held sway for, for a while. Um, well, even so, the philosophical novel and its close cousin, the novel of ideas, um, came to occupy a huge part of the Western literary canon. And um, I'm going to... Uh, quote Henry James here. Peter and I didn't know we were both going to talk about Henry James a bit. But it was James who observed that um, the English novel, unlike its French counterpart, was not discutable. There's, this remark has always seemed to me a bit unfair, if not downright insulting. And meanwhile, T.S. Eliot said of James... He had a mind so fine that no idea could violate it. <laughs> uh, by the 1920s, I'm racing through literary history at breakneck speed here, um, Lawrence was able to say, D.H. Lawrence was able to say, it seems to me the greatest pity in the world when philosophy and literature got split. They used to be one right from the days of myth. Then they parted like a nagging married couple. The two should come together again in the novel. Now, nearly a century later, uh, the two still have a difficult relationship, it seems to me, if not quite that of the, the nagging married couple that Lawrence had in mind. Um, probably of two distinct types who flirt with one another but don't quite um, consummate the marriage or something. And in some ways, well, people have argued, um, Peter alluded to this, that, that um, the novel of ideas is already de dead. Uh, Peter talked about degrees of deadness. I'm, I'm not quite sure um, 
But a lot of the time, people don't even uh, mourn the death of the novel of ideas. It's one of these deaths that they... Um, that people avoid speaking about too much, you know, a bit like um, the death of a, a dodgy relative. You know, you don't want to speak about it too much and, and, and in case you are thought culpable by association. <laughs> um, these days, I suppose it's hard to know what the novel of ideas is or if we happened upon one, what it would look like exactly. Typically, it's been understood as having concern with moral values and, um, and truth and with topics of existential significance. But we're unlikely, it seems to me, to be able to reel off examples in the way that we can with other genres without going into other centuries or other countries. I think this is a pity because novels and ideas have a great deal to offer one another, it seems to me. Some things, not least of all, that which makes us human, um, can never be adequately expressed at the level of theory, um, pure philosophical theory, or even pure scientific writing. Philosophy, for example, can state the facts of our own mortality, but it takes a novel to um, explore that dreadful hammer blow moment that deprives us of someone we love. So in, in a strange sense, um, the, it's a novel that can bring death alive, so to speak. Um, novelists and philosophers share other things. They have other common ground. Um, they seek to see into the life of things, in Wordsworth's phrase, but only, only the novel, novel is something felt and lived. It's not something theoretical. It offers its own truth, and it's a truth that we recognise ourselves as, as being very human, one that resonates with us. Um, the novel need not uh, avoid words like knowledge and belief, it seems to me. It just means that they, they're brought into a different, a different realm, a human realm. Um, Wittgenstein said, I wanted to get Wittgenstein in, um, <laughs> one thinks that one is tracing the outline of a thing's nature and one is merely tracing round the frame through which one looks at it. To put it another way, the philosopher, the ideas man, is able to encapsulate the idea of the nature of things, but it's the novelist who picks it up and runs with it. Now, clearly there are problems. There, there's a problem with how, uh, how serious, how heavyweight a novel can, can get without alienating its readers um, or reviewers. Don't forget the reviewers. How many <coughs> reviews have we read where the reviewer says this novel is collapsing under the weight of its own idea. Um, there's no point in that, it seems to me. Um, I mean, have a, write a novel which groans under its own weight. But the tipping point is always unpredictable. Um, 
It's interesting that Iris Murdoch is still perhaps the author in modern times that we most associate with the novel of ideas. And yet, her books, for modern tastes, can seem now quite remote. But it seems to me that this is a risk which any novel of ideas being written now runs. Um, the novel, written, novel like that written today can already begin to seem, in some sense, passé, um, outmoded, not cool. Um, and all of this translates as hard to sell, which we mustn't forget. Um, my own last novel, which um, Michael referred to, um, flirted with big ideas, uh, big David Humean ideas, like um, the illusory nature of happiness, the dangers in too much thinking, the problem of free will. And they were all baked in a hot oven of love and death and mental breakdown and so on. I know I'm not selling it to you. <laughs> but I was astonished when I sent it off to the publisher, praise be upon him, uh, when he came back and said, I'd like more, I'd like more ideas. What, I said. Um, yes, I'd like more, more philosophy. And so I supplied more. We had a bit of a, a discussion about the title, which um, he thought... Uh, might put people off because, you know, it was difficult to understand and, and, you know, people wouldn't know what the book was about. Uh, but I argued for it and he said, well, okay then. Um, but when he decided to give the, the, the novel a subtitle, which was A Philosophical Adventure, all hell broke loose <laughs> because the, the, the marketing men and women, I suppose, um, said, you can't do that. You can't have a subtitle with the word philosophical in it. Um, the P word puts people off. It's too, too hard, it's too difficult, it's, it's not cool. Um, so there is a lot of, you know, we mustn't frighten the horses. And I'm not saying that this sort of thing is new. I remember when um, uh, the, New York, um, the New Yorker published the first three parts of Milan Kundera's the unbearable likeness of being. This was 30 years ago, and they left out the crucial passages about um, Nietzsche's Ewige Wiederkehr, the, the theory of eternal return, which was absolutely central to the novel. It was what the novel was rooted in. And I don't know why they did it. Kundra was furious, apparently. But, you know, one suspects that it was a marketing decision. Um, just to finish up... Um, when I was a student reading uh, moral philosophy and Russian literature I came to believe and I believe it still that moral philosophy moral ideas actually need the novel for the best possible expression of, of their aims to show life in all its mystery and complexity and contingency and particularity, to, to show, uh, again, as Henry James put it, the strange, irregular rhythms of life. So Plato was surely wrong to think that literature had nothing to give philosophy. Um, it's true that philosophers have long looked askance at the storytellers, but the storytellers have always been able to say, well, this is how the world <coughs> is, this is how it's, 
it feels and this is how, it's, how, how people live. I leave you with this last thought. Um, it's one thing to study, as I did, um, John Stuart Mill's defense of utilitarian ethics. It's quite another to read the passage from Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment where Raskolnikov, who's testing the theory to, to its limits, takes an axe and cleaves an old woman's head in two. Um, the novel of ideas need not imply tract or thesis or pulpit or sermon. Um, I think it is the only form of writing that can create such a particular mixture of character, empathy, imagination and substance. And that's why when it's done well, when it succeeds, it can be a, a wonderful thing. Thank you. Thanks very much, Jenny. It's wonderful um, to get down to some practical details about <coughs> the novel as well in the modern market, and also to hear that it's still the critic's fault. Uh, I'm going to ask Andrew Hagen to take over, so this will stand but speak. When I was a boy, um, I used to watch films with my mother. My father was always away, always away in quite a mysterious fashion. Uh, we never really discussed the fact that he was away in a mysterious fashion. We just sort of lived in it. Um, and we'd occasionally look over the sitting room at each other and everything that needed to be said was said without any words. Um, his absence and his general delinquency being implied. Um, we, the way we spent these hours was, hours was to watch films, um, and I'll never forget watching one in particular. Um, it was Dr. Zhivago, um, and it was a very uh, elaborate uh, experience for us. Um, and I, said, I, was, I was quite young, but, but I remember that moment in the film, I don't know if any of you remember, when Omar Sharif, wearing a rather um, uh, you know, excessive uh, dressing gown and, uh, <laughs> and an elaborate moustache, uh, follows his moustache downstairs, takes himself downstairs to, to this study. I'd never heard of this thing called a study before. I was really excited. Uh, he went into this study, and he sits down at this enormous écritoire, and he looks through these French windows and sees in quick succession... Uh, a host of daffodils, a bank of snow, a sky full of swallows, and a herd of deer. And he dips his pen into the inkwell. In about four and a half nanoseconds, he writes the sonnet to Lara. Um, then he goes upstairs and goes to bed with Julie Christie. I remember watching <laughs> that and thinking, I could do that. <laughs> and it seemed to me that the life of the writer was a thing very much to be envied. Um, and the as far as I'm concerned, uh, it, took some, it took some years for me to really go back, well, not, not, not only to look at the film again, but to read the novel and see that that too was a thing of ideas. And that somehow, uh, apart from that uh, ridiculous idea of um, you know, being Omar Sharif, uh, much more had got into my head. And I have to say that uh, picking up from where we started, uh, Will Self's notion of the novel being dead is actually a hackneyed thing in itself. I mean, I would say that to Will quite happily and probably have. Um, the, the, everything that threatens the novel becomes a subject for the novel. 
That's the nature of the novel. It's been under threat since Daniel Defoe. It's been proclaimed a dead thing in the water uh, by uh, so many critics, Roland Barthes included. The death of the author, the end of the novel, it is a kind of almost rejuvenating moment for the novel in any age when people start to talk about its death. And it's interesting that it happens in our world much more than it happens, say, in the world of painting or architecture. You know, that often hear people say, well, it's the, the death of painting. You have he- heard it said, of course, and Howard Hodgkin comes along and says, it was the rebirth of painting. Or, you know, this, this, the life and death of an art form seems to be just a kind of journalistic cliché. Uh, Will should probably know better, but... Um, there's a persistence to the form, and it's persistent for some of the reasons I think that Jenny said, that it's because it's essential to us. Uh, we should talk about storytelling, we should talk about that essential requirement we have. The American writer Joan Didion said, titled one of our books, We Tell Stories in Order to Live. We, you know, we, we need stories in order to survive our lives. And sometimes as a working novelist, not just sometimes, I mean, perhaps in my case all the time, you never sit down, as it were, uh, with a, a knitting basket of your ideas and think, well, I've got a new novel to write. What are my ideas? You know, what ideas will I work into this particular masterpiece? Um, for a start, you never think it's going to be a masterpiece. You just think, if I can get through this <laughs> to the other side, then I'll have, you know, done myself some credit just by breathing again. But... Um, you don't, as it were, crane ideas into a novel. A novel's a living organism of ideas, and that you're a living person um, who has slipped into the ether of your own creation in a way that is absolutely compelling to you if you're professional, and hopefully not entirely uncompelling to anybody who eventually reads it. This business of serious fiction eluding paraphrase, that seems to me essential. The what we have with uh, a novel, especially, is a little moral machine, which is absolutely and utterly its own atmosphere. It can't be paraphrased. And actually, <coughs> literary journalism today, especially, has uh, a sin to answer to for its addiction to paraphrasing most reviews that you read, and I say this as somebody who's always been rather too well treated by reviewers, I've not got any complaint with reviewers, and indeed, um, even again, recently, it's been a happy experience for me with reviewers, but I have to say, nonetheless, that as a form, it's very much married to a marketing ambition about telling people whether thumbs up or thumbs down, buy this or don't buy it. The commercial, as it were, the life of the novel has slightly swamped uh, our sense of responsibility, responsibility as to its ideas. And it seems to me, if I can just, you know, I'm raising things that I know we'll argue about in a minute, but it seems to me that every good novel is a novel of ideas. The idea that there's such a thing as the novel of ideas over here and everything else which is a kind of idealist novel. You know, um, even novelists who you would think of as being plain novelists or being fiction writers both in the short story and in the novel, who deal in, as it were, explicit um, uh, uh, lacks of complexity. I mean, you might say that Alice Munro is a simple writer. She's not an idealist uh, short story writer. She's absolutely uh, in the grain of her ideas. You know, Hemingway is a straightforward writer, but what an incredible philosophical novelist, from my perspective. 
Uh, it seems to me that there's a false distinction often made between the novel of ideas, by what people really mean the avant-garde novel, uh, or the bohemian, uh, perhaps, uh, you know, experimental novel. They mean B.S. Johnson and Christine Brooke Rose, perhaps, uh, in the past. Um, but to me, every good novelist is dealing with ideas and living through ideas and, as it were, providing the moral arithmetic to allow ideas to become fully alive in the mind of their readers. That's our responsibility. Um, there's a, there is a toxic aspect to the culture now that doesn't like the notion of ideas of philosophy, as Jenny, I think, uh, lighted on. Uh, the notion of things being difficult, of hardship, has taken a bit of a battering in our culture over the last few decades. Um, anybody who's got children will, uh, will recognise immediately the uphill struggle one sometimes has um, with the notion that things don't need to be enjoyable immediately in order to be valuable. And I rather old-fashionedly and perhaps Scottishly hang on to the notion that it's quite good for you to take a bit of harsh medicine now and again. But, you know, to return to that initial sense of the magic of it and the opportunity of it, for me, uh, reading Robert Louis Stevenson as a kid, you know, a completely compelling writer, full of incident, full of sensation, full of surprise but also chock-a-block with ideas. You know, who better encapsulated the Greek mythic idea of a divided self but Robert Louis Stevenson in his great uh, case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I put it to you that sometimes under incredible art and under the guise of simplicity, uh, we're experiencing uh, the most profound ideas in our lives. Um, Robert Louis Stevenson once talked about his ambition for the sentence. He said, I want to write uh, in a way that demonstrates a strong Scots accent of the mind. <laughs> and I've never forgotten that, because it seems to me to underline this simple point I'm trying to make that all good novels are novels of ideas. That we're, in a sense, in a state of correspondence uh, with the, the thoughtful uh, uh, Jenny used the phrase picking up ideas and running with them. Uh, that, is, to me, is a very good description of what a novelist, why a novelist should get up in the morning. We're supposed to be the athletes in the form. Forgive. I mean, no, I know looking at us a lot, you might think <laughs> athletes perhaps not. Forgive me. Um, but, in fact, we are the athletes of the form. That's our responsibility. We're the runners. And I think that um, the minute you give up responsibility for that, I don't know actually what it would be like to suddenly announce to oneself that I'm going to be the novelist without ideas. <laughs> um, although I look forward to giving it a try with the next one. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> okay, so I think there's a couple of interesting things um, emerging there. The thing that strikes me now, belatedly, is what we're really mounting here is a defence of the Scottish novel. <laughs> and I realised... Until those two papers. Um, we're going to talk briefly, uh, sort of amongst ourselves, I, I think, just to kind of um, draw some of these things together and maybe come back to them. Um, one thing that interests me, I think I'm going to pick up on what you were saying, Andrew, straight away, um, is that all novels being novelized of ideas. For you, is there a difference between the novel that proclaims immediately its inauthenticity, which obviously they all are, they're all fictions, but immediately says, Here's God walking into a room, sitting down, and he happens to be next to Voltaire, which I think Bridget Brophy did and brought in various mm. other characters to talk as well. Is there a difference for you between that kind of fiction 
is set up as such. And there are lots of the books that are like that. I mean, in Socratic Dialogue, uh, Moore's Utopia, I guess, works the same way. It's a story as well, in a sense. Uh, the difference between that and a novel along the lines you were talking about, and maybe in the um, Missing Shade of Blue as well works that way. Or it's just you... a different novel. You know, it's not a different species of fiction. Mm-hmm. It's just a different novel. It is, to me, no different, in essence from the hardcore, shall we say, social realist novel where you're trying to reinvent for the reader uh, a kitchen uh, in contemporary Britain today and it being populated by a couple of human beings talking about the price of toothpaste. That, to me, is as much a piece of human imagination and a human imagining on behalf of readers. We're talking about marks on a page here, or on a screen if you prefer, uh, which somehow carry you into a position where you're able to imagine uh, a number of ideas um, about relationships, about the meaning of life, about uh, uh, the, the economy, about um, sexuality, about stereotypes, any number of things we could go on and on. But the idea that, uh, as it were, the more, biz- the more obviously bizarre mise-en-scene uh, by virtue of being bizarre and having God sitting next to Voltaire, is immediately dealing in ideas. Mm-hmm. Whereas the scenario in the kitchen is just kind of blank and empty. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather to the contrary, I might suggest, we've had riches. Uh, and I don't say this as somebody campaigning for the realist novel. I don't even particularly know what the realist novel would be. But the idea that you must set Zola against Flaubert endlessly to the detriment of Zola... It's a nonsense. It's just a different sort of novel. Therese Rakan has splendours that wouldn't be conceivable to Henry James, who would think them crude and over-described and so on. But, you know, I think we sometimes forget that it's not, uh, it's not a competition straightforwardly. Writers often behave as if it is, and sometimes reading interviews with authors gives me the creeps because they are always campaigning for their style. Um, Especially Irish writers, I've noticed, are tremendously keen to campaign for... They've got the answer. Well, they don't have the answer. They just have their style. Don DeLillo's novel is a wonderful thing. Style is a wonderful thing, but so, arguably, you know, is Angela Carter's. We don't need to... We don't need to crown one the winner. Absolutely. So the English are sitting this one out, I think. <laughs> and also we know it's the critic sorts, partly putting things in boxes, isn't it, saying, well, there's God, there's God. It's exhausting. Philosophy. I mean, it, what were the reviews? What did you think? We, we've talked already about these sins of the reviewers, you know, too much praising, trying to paraphrase. What was the response to the machine shade of blue? It was oh. entirely predictable for you. Um, well... I think I, I got off very lightly. I mean, I, I was really lucky, and I'm, I mean lucky because I think there is a lot of luck involved in, in reviews, and you just sort of heave a sigh of relief if it goes well. But yes, I mean, a lot of the reviews did talk about ideas. Um, but I agree, I agree with Andrew uh, that there's no shortage of ideas. Uh, no shortage of the sort of thing that um, people in this room will be stimula- stimulated by, engaged by, and so on. But a novel must be something more than a vehicle for ideas. Um, with, with The Missing Shade, I suppose it was a kind of um, homage to David Hume, because um, it struck me that uh, when I was when I was studying philosophy, you know, so many philosophers seemed um, set apart from life as it has lived. But the one exception was, was David Hume. And he, s- he starts off 
um, with sympathy for his fellow man and he um, writes in a way writes in a way of intelligent conversation but he's interested in the person um, how the person lives his life uh, flaws the, the flawed, he knows that we're all flawed so he's interested in how people live um, what makes them behave as they do um, but he's, he starts off with compassion and faith in human beings and freedom from fear um, and, a, and a certain love of the world and all these he calls excellencies and it seems to me that um, David Hume is a kind of novelist Monquet, uh, which sets him apart from, from other philosophers but I think Andrew's right, when it comes to a novel you, you know, a novel must pull you in and hold you there and keep you there um, I remember also when I was a student I had to I, I had to take a course called the German Novel of Ideas this was a particular category and it included people like Thomas Mann and Nietzsche and so on and this uh, Robert Musil you know the man without qualities and we had to read this in German I mean it was completely impenetrable um, probably worse in, in German it, it, it was translated all one 50s. word probably. <laughs> <laughs> it, it ran to it ran to a thousand pages and it I was sort of making a serious point in some ways although it's difficult not to laugh but taken in small doses it it is exhilarating. It's the sort of book that everyone's heard of and no one has, has ever <laughs> finished. And in fact, the author didn't finish either. It killed him. <laughs> it, it killed him. It, it, he, he was writing it for 20 years and then he suddenly dropped dead in the bathroom, I think, and his wife found him uh, with a look of mockery and mild astonishment on his face. So it was almost as if in the last minute before he died, he realised, I haven't finished this um, this book <laughs> and it's killed me you know the whole weight of it's killed me but taken in small doses it's fine and he is able to see into the minds of his characters and so on and that's all lovely but I don't know anyone who's swallowed it whole and felt entirely well <laughs> I think this is a problem with this category the novel of ideas Peter. As a separate I mean, there's a category of uh, novels that have killed their novelists. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> we can all list a few of them, I think. Um, it's probably, probably cruel to, to go into that. Um, I'm afraid I'm, uh, to make for a very boring panel, I'm going to agree with both of you also. Um, in the, the, um, you can all disagree. <laughs> of course, uh, the, every novel is a novel of ideas. And, and I suppose that to come back to Jenny's Jenny's piece, uh, when a novel becomes philosophical in inverted commas, it's, ob it's often failing, I think. Um, so if we think of the, this isn't a novelist, it's a poet, but if we think of the late T.S. Eliot, um, when he starts writing that poetry that goes time past and time present is present in time future and all time is irredeemable, you think... Elliot, what's happened to you? You're writing, you're writing an essay. I mean, where's, the, where's the poetry in, in that? Um, 
Uh, and if you go from T.S. Eliot to George Eliot, you think, well, George Eliot is the most thoughtful writer you can imagine, um, and the most philosophical writer. Um, but she, though she embeds her thinking in her, in 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 the, in the novel, and I th- and I think rather than thinking there's a novel of ideas and there's a novel that isn't I- uh, made of ideas, I think what we have to do is work out how the novel thinks. Um, Wittgenstein thinks in one way. If you try and if you try and read Wittgenstein and work out what he's thinking, you, you're probably a better person than me. Uh, De Lillo says that, that Wittgenstein writes in Martian, <laughs> um, but he writes in he writes in a, in a very specific philosophical idiom. Um, uh, Eliot, T.S. Eliot is writing in a specific philo- philosophical idiom at the end of the fourth quartet, uh, but the, a, no- a novelist works in a different idiom and is, a- is able, as a result, to think thoughts that a philosopher can't think. Um, an example might be that if you if you read Augustine's Confessions on the unknowability of time, Augustine writes absolutely beautifully on how time is not actually thinkable or knowable. Um, and he does so in a philosophical idiom. And you know something about the unknowability of time reading him, but you know it in a philosophical way, if we can agree on what that is. I don't know whether we would. But you read almost any novel, but you read Proust, and you, you know the unknowability mm. of time in a completely different way. You know it, you feel it, or you... I mean, feel is a hackneyed phrase. Um, but, you, but you're, you're put inside the unknowability of time and are, and, and are able to experience it in a way that Augustine wouldn't allow you yeah. to do. Yeah, I think that's right. And also I think, you know, the audience will come back to us on this, I'm sure, but often what I think people are really talking about when they're talking about enthusiastically about the novel of ideas is that, uh, is that willingness of some novelists to take on the big problems of their time. And... You know, we call it the novel of ideas. I mean, Don DeLillo is often called a novelist of ideas. He's just simply a novelist who's terrifically interested in the way life is in America now or has been since the late 60s. And brilliant at writing sentences. And brilliant at writing sentences, and that's his main achievement as far as I'm concerned. He would be a brilliant writer if he was writing pastiche novels set at the time of the Tudors, although somebody else (laughs) is doing that. Um, But, you know, the fact is... Sometimes you do look, just to speak up a bit for that tendency towards this uh, uh, phony novel of ideas, sometimes you do think, why hasn't a contemporary novelist tried to enter into that aspect of, for example, contemporary evil? I mean, you, would, you mentioned um, Iris Murdoch. You know, one of the things, I mean, although those novels don't read particularly well now, I would argue, they did in their moment uh, enter into the energy of the time the, 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 the intellectual energy of the time particularly, and they took on the difficulty of how to conceive of evil in the 20th century in the context that interested her. And I think sometimes uh, the novelists coming through are frightened of evil, and they're, they're slightly too interested in, not that they're frightened of ideas, but the idea of the unfathomable is... I think, unattractive to both readers and a generation of writers at the moment. I was talking to some of my colleagues, if I can mention it, just before coming in, about that play that's on at the Duchess Theatre. It was on the court called The Never. I don't know if any of you have seen this play. I mean, for what, for what my opinion's worth, it's not a fantastic play, but it's got a fantastic effect. It has a fantastic effect. A lot of that, I think, is to do with the set design, but anyway, we're not here to talk about that. I just wanted to draw your attention to the fact that it, one of the reasons I think it's on, on in a West End theatre 
although it's a difficult play, it's a short, difficult play, is because it is actually unfrightened. It's not frightened of the unthinkable. People go into the theatre to contemplate thought crime and paedophilia. Now, I don't know a contemporary British novelist who would actually take you there. You know, you'll be able to tell me one in a minute, but I, don't, I haven't read it. You know, there's a line in this, just this is an exchange between two characters, there's only a couple of lines, bear with me. Um, Sim says, come on, you're missing out, the point is, it doesn't matter whether you kill a boar or a demon, whether you have sex with a child or an elf, it's nothing but images, and there is no consequence, the other guy says, Morris, images, ideas, create reality. Everything around us, our houses, our bridges, our wars, our peace treaties, began as figments in somebody's mind before becoming a physical or social fact. Now, I can imagine perhaps two people in a contemporary British novel having that exchange, but I can't imagine the whole shape and mechanics and form of the novel furnishing that interest in evil. I think it would just be an exchange in a pub or something. It's at the formal level, perhaps. This play was formally difficult. It did something with space and time that was actually properly experimental. So perhaps we should just allow the possibility that the missing thing about when it comes to the novel of ideas is that willingness to confront the really unspeakable. So this is a question partly about um, where we talked about the idea of the death of the novel being just repeated or you know, a canard. Um, it's because, in fact, the novel continually needs to look for these new ideas and pick up new things be aware of life as it is and not become a zombie, I think is the term we use to begin with. Um, I think now it's time for the microphones to wander around the room. Can I remind you of what I said earlier? If we can keep things um, quite succinct, ideally questions for people on the panel, um, just three points, that would be fantastic. Lots of points would be, would be even better. Uh, hang on a bit. Are we already? We've got just one? Just one? Okay, you're ready to sprint around the whole place. Here we go. Big moment. Can I have the gentleman in blue? I think we'll take a couple of questions first. Uh, gentleman in blue jumper, lady with the red hair. We'll just take you in turn, and then is there, sorry, lady in the front. We'll take three points and then come back. So I'll, I'll come back to you in a moment. Okay, so let's see. Sorry. Hi. I think it was Peter that's mentioned in passing the greater appetite for the intellectual novel in France. Do you think there's, at least in um, public life, and anti-intellectualism in this country mm-hmm. compared to the continent. Okay, so is there an anti-intellectualism here as opposed to the continent? Thanks. I'm sorry, I didn't say as well. Can you say who you are? Stephen Agate. Okay, thank you very much. If you could identify yourselves when you're talking. Hello, sorry. Hello, Sandra Sheffy. I just wanted to mention this to Mr. O'Hagan. Um, it is O'Hagan, I think, yeah. They did, uh, you know, the film M that, uh, that was done by mm. Fritz Lang is based yes. on that scenario. And it was remade uh, in, the fi- in 57 mm-hmm. again uh, with Luther Adler, I think, playing the Peter Lorre yeah. role. Uh, and, that, you know, so that it, was, it was, done at, was done at one time. I mean, they dealt with that theme back mm. in the 30s and then up through the 50s. Yeah. Is that, is, is that got anything to do with a contemporary British novelist doing it now, though? I mean, what I was saying was that I can't imagine it being done by a young novelist now. Remake so. it in but that's a film, though. We're talking about the novel, right? I think it was based on a novel. Not was it really? Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, let's hope for that anyway. No, that's <laughs> Can we have, sorry, the, sorry, make you run around. Can we have the lady at the front, please, and then we'll take a couple of minutes and go back. Sorry. I hope that I have. Sorry, a, who, who are you? Yeah, uh, I hope that I have a question. 
King Solomon's. Sorry, what, what's, your, what's your name? Ah, Tiki Martel. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Uh, King Solomon said there is nothing new under the sun. And he wrote about sex and depression. And also D.H. Lawrence uh, to, uh, wrote about sex. And I thought there is a place for both of them in my uh, mind. And uh, we spent time actually uh, chasing the hidden, the nothingness. Um, novelty of ideas are timeless. <clears throat> we need Ferdosi, Datrochana, Nietzsche wrote about Superman, the old man and the seed that you mentioned. These are uh, very healing things for us to read. And I was the other day on the train, and there was a book written by Katie Price. And I really, really thought she covered everything. <laughs> you have to hear first. Katie Price as major European novelist of ideas. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so there's that. There's Katie Price as novelist of ideas, and there's continental philosophy, and and here, um, Jenny, would you like to reply about any I'm of those? Uh, I, should say, I, should, I should, we should say in response to the first question that I think it was actually Jenny that that yeah. was uh, making sorry, the distinction between the French yes, and the British. Um, I, I'm not an expert on this. I, I just know that it's, uh, it's much easier to get a slim novel, which is difficult and uh, hard to penetrate, published in France than it, than it is in, in Britain. I mean, I'm all in favour of this. I'm not against the, the, the French novel at all. Um, but I think we, we just have a different way of, of looking at these things. Um, it's, it's also a question of size. Um, you know, when Julian Barnes brought out the sense of an ending, you know, most of the talk was about, well, was it a novel? You know, or was it a novella? You know, rather than just taking it on its own terms. And it seems to me that a lot of the discussion... Um, get sidetracked in this way and it, it's, it's not intrinsically interesting, you know, the length of, length of the book, but just as, as a matter of fact in France there are a lot of very short <laughs> books that call themselves novels and I think that's a good thing. You think so, Peter? I mean, I, I, would, add, I would add to that that uh, the person that jumps into my mind is uh, Samuel Beckett who wrote in English and in French mm-hmm. um, uh, he was asked, are you, a, are you a Britishman in Paris? And he said, au contraire, which was... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, uh, the, um, he, when asked, why are you writing in, Fran- in French rather than in English, he said, because I want to escape the necessity of style. Um, which, I, which I think, uh, although that, that might be apocryphal, I don't know, but the, 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 I think the, the sense for Beckett was that French freed him into a certain kind of... Uh, uh, Thinking or a certain paired philosophy that the that the weight of the English novel didn't allow him to to yeah. enter into. I mean, the other thing, which may or may not be relevant, is that philosophy is still a compulsory subject in French schools. Yeah. And I think that does um, filter through. Yeah. And Germans have got that, those compound nouns. <laughs> you can do an awful lot of thinking with a very yeah. small amount. We can take a couple more questions. There's a lady in the second row who's been very patient. Uh, are there anybody else? On? Sorry, the lady in the next row back. Yes, yes. after you next. And then, sorry, the gentleman. 
It, it's a very controversial question. I think everybody in this audience reads books. And so is there life in the novel of ideas? We hope there is. My question is, looking towards the future and social media, when people aren't reading books, because to read a book you have to sit down and read it, I want to ask the question how you think social media will impact on the discussion we're having. We were talking about the past and sitting down and reading books. That's my question. Social media and reading books. Thank you very much. Social media and reading books. A good question. And what's your name? Sorry. Vivian Reese. Thank you very much. Can we have the... Hey, sorry, the middle there. Um, Hannah Jordan. Um, I was very interested in what Andrew said about the idea that art and architecture might not have generated the same kind of ideas about the death of, of their form. Um, and I just, you know, if you, if you think about the novel, perhaps as the contemporary of easel painting, mm-hmm. um, actually, easel painting has died a death. You know, yep. easel painting from the 1960s onwards could no longer bear the weight of representation Mm-hmm. And art has, in fact, had to diversify much more strongly. Yeah. Video art, performance art, conceptual art. So why is it that if easel painting couldn't make it, why is the novel still making it? What is it about the novel that means it can still bear the weight of representation yeah. after the crisis of representation that, Growing question. that the 1960s... Mm-hmm. Great, thank you very much. And sorry, we have the gentleman uh, further up in the... Uh, Thank you, Gareth Davis. Um, I just wondered if there is life in the novel of ideas now. It's to the extent that it engages in new ideas and um, areas of intellectual life which have got a particular um, vivescence. So, for example, um, Ian McEwen might be said to be very interested in neurology, areas like that, which are really developing at the moment. Um, So I just wanted to ask the panel that and whether maybe I don't want to be... Um, critical, um, but maybe David Hume is quite an old thinker and <coughs> engaging in someone like that. I think the, the obvious answer to that is the, the classics are very deep, um, but also we need to engage with what's new. Uh, and just on Andrew Hagen's question about uh, the unfathomed bounty of evil, and if there's a novel, I wonder whether Nevermind by Edmondson Orbin might be a candidate for that. Interesting. Okay, so never mind and new ideas and social media and and the easel. Um, would anyone like to, Andrew? Would you like to? Yeah. Um, the I don't know if I'll do them in any order, but it's interesting. Uh, very interesting. This question about social media. Obviously, it's on everyone's minds. But I think we sometimes allow ourselves to become very instantly hysterical about this problem without actually looking at the facts. During the time that social media has, as it were, grown. Uh, the readership of some of the intellectual journals in our country has quadrupled. So the London Review of Books, when I got to know it in the early 90s, before Twitter and Facebook, sold 11,000 copies. It now sells over 60,000 copies. Now, there are reasons for that that aren't to do just with a growth. In, you know, I'm not just suggesting that everybody's running out to read long articles in intellectual journals. They're not, and there's been a lot of marketing put into that particular magazine to grow its readership. So, But it's not... At the same time, it's not the story that everybody's attention span has shrunk to 140 characters. It just isn't true. Because a lot of people... 
as it happens, are becoming more and more interested. The TLS, the London Review, Spectator, they're still all holding up. They're still here. They haven't been abolished by these new vigorous short attention span heroes who want to see everything instantly and consume everything instantly. Actually, we're finding uh, that there are more books being published and there are as many people more now flocking to those magazines. I think people, in, in an atmosphere of the quick exchange of opinions, thoughts, ideas and nonsense, not all of it is nonsense, but there is a lot of that too, um, are almost in reaction to that hungry for contemplation. And I think actually the Twitter might turn out to have been a great friend to the literary novel because it's creating, as it were, its equal powerful monster in the other side of the wall. And that is this need for contemplation, uh, a different kind of urgency, uh, spreading your elbows and actually looking, as you were describing, taking the time. Um, so the mania, I think, that you sometimes hear expressed that Twitter's destroyed our literary culture, I don't buy it. It's just not borne out by the figures yet. Um, Peter, well, yeah, yeah, what you pick up well, You're going to respond to the easel. Well, I shouldn't do them all. Um, should, um, should we go? Yeah, I just wanted to, to agree agree with you again, very very sort of strenuously. That if you, I don't know how many people have read Dave Egger's novel, The Circle, yeah. um, a, a, a sort of frighteningly plausible account of what happens when social media over. Uh, becomes the democratic public sphere and, and in this sort of nightmare vision the more we Google and Twitter and text one another, the more we lose our capacity to think or to have any kind of private individuality or any private existence at all um, what seems sort of sad about that novel to me is that it is its incapacity to recognise the, the, the sort of democratic potential of new forms and we are very conservative and very very quick to, to think that if it's not in a, in a in a form like this, it's somehow not going to exist. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, this public sphere has become in, incredibly diverse and, and challenging and <coughs> thought-provoking. And you know, I, I teach at a university. The generation of, of students that we've got coming through now under these conditions think more quickly, more energetically than any other previous generation of students I've, I've seen. I think, I think you, need to, you need to have faith that the novel is a... Is a Institution has has the kind of capacity to easily engage with new with new formats without thinking mm. that, that we're going to somehow we've got to go back to Gutenberg before <laughs> otherwise we're all going to stop thinking. That's such a relief to hear that because somebody who hates me even having a Twitter account regularly says to me quite smugly, "You should read the Circle." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do. Oh, Jenny, did you? <laughs> Well, I'm trying to think of a clever answer to the question about easel painting, and I haven't been able to come up. Come up with anything, except to say that um, the the death of the, the cinema was announced when the video recorder was was invented, and that's something that hasn't happened. Um, I don't know if we can make direct comparisons between easel painting and writing, and the and the results that we get from from each activity. But while I'm thinking about a better answer to that, I've just come to um, Hume's defence, if I may. <laughs> um, I, I actually take your point that we need to engage with, with new thinkers, new philosophers, new ideas, and so on. But I, I really do think that, that David Hume um, lives, you know, he speaks to us still. 
Um, he understood a lot in the 17th century, which is still relevant now. For example, um, <coughs> well, as a young man, when he was 21, he had what we would now call the nervous breakdown. Then it was called the disease of the learned. That's what the physicians called it then. <coughs> and um, he was in terrible turmoil, terrible trouble. Um, and the, the cure, the therapy, was to, to walk, to talk, as, as, we, as we know now. They, these are still modern cures. Every day he walked around Salisbury, Crags and Edinburgh. He dined at lots of tables. He played backgammon. Maybe not so many people play backgammon now. And he, he engaged with his fellow, fellow man. And he came to understand that a happy life is made up <coughs> of small moments. The pursuit of happiness, which a lot of people have found to their cost, is futile. He knew that it was then, but he knew that just in ordinary, everyday moments, this was how happiness might be, might happen. So I think he does still have things to say to us. A lesson that's remained remarkably fresh. That sounds very good. Um, let's take a few more questions. Sorry, there's a gentleman there and uh, the lady in front. So can we get to in here? And I, sorry, I've been ignoring this side. There's a few uh, weren't allowed to ask you things. There's a gentleman at the back as well. Okay, so yeah, two at the front, one at the back, and then we'll come back. Pam. Thank you. Um, Could you say na- your name as well? <laughs> my name is Ivor Wells. Um, without wanting to um, stray too much into politics, despite the fact that we're at, at the LSE. Um, <laughs> I'm just wondering in terms of the, the, the novel of ideas and the, um, the idea or our understanding of history and those, those, the, the great big questions of, of history and where novels sit within that, that wider sweep of history. I'm just wondering <coughs> what the panel might have to say about this notion that we are, um, rightly or wrongly, um, you know, the end of the Cold War, the end of Fukuyama's end of history, this, uh, this, this idea that there are no, great, no more great ideas to be had about how to live in this world and what, you know, uh, the, de- the death of socialism, the end of capitalism, and this, 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 this sort of milieu that we find ourselves in, um, in in history, whether that's true or not, how that perhaps could be influencing our understanding in the literary uh, scene as well. Cool. Mm-hmm. Great. So, that makes sense. Okay, mm-hmm. so. Um, I'm Sonia Richardson. I'm somewhat surprised that the notion of character and its vital importance in novels has not really yet been discussed. I would have thought character, the development of character, characters carrying ideas, and there's a wide variety of ways in which that's done, is one of the things that has sustained the novel, the ability to identify. And perhaps as you read more and you, you grow as a person, you're able to understand a wider range of character traits within novels. I would have thought this is one of the things that is, um, has caused, one of the central things that's driven the history of the novel and why it continues to exist and why it will go on existing, because we're all really, really interested. No, all. Most people are really, really interested in that. Thank you very much. Good point. Okay, so Fukuyama, as failed commentator on the novel ideas, character in novels, and sorry, there's a gentleman at the back as well. Take those three. Come back, Hi, uh, my name's Neil Fitzgerald. Um, one idea that 
uh, crossed my mind when we, I was first thinking of novel of ideas was this idea of Jean-François Lyotard who talked about the, that in postmodernism, grand narratives have failed and um, you know, no longer existed and the death of ideology which was raised by the, the first question as well. When I think of novel, novels of ideas, I come up with one late motif. For example, La Nausée by um, Sartre is femino- phenomenology. Um, Camus, it's existentialism. Orwell, it's totalitarianism. And I wonder if we're living through a postmodern age or even a post-postmodern age, we have novels of ideas, plural, not singular. Um, and perhaps because of this uh, global world we live in, where we have these telecommunications, there are just too many ideas and the novel can't contain them. If you think of Don DeLillo, there's so many ideas that they cram in there. Thomas Pynchon is the same, that the complexity of the modern world maybe evades an, uh, you know, a novel of an idea and novels of ideas in terms of an overarching one. Well, it's, it's just too plural to have contained in, in, the, in that format. Okay, so we contain multitudes of ideas. <laughs> Peter, would you like to reply? Um, yeah, to, to start with uh, your question and your question, uh, to merge them in some way, the, the, the fate of character and how that relates to novelists like Pynchon and Delilah. You know, every, everyone, one of the first things that people will the first hostile comments that someone would make about a Pynchon novel or a DeLillo novel is that it's got no characters in them or the characters are simply mouthpieces for the, uh, the ideas that the, that the author is playing with. Um, I, think, I think the history of the, of the 20th century novel is really a history that, that sees the development of thinking in direct proportion to the collapse of character as a as a central concern of the novel. So if you, if, you, if you look at Beckett's Unnameable, you're not going to find some very distinctly drawn characters. You're going to find a, a kind of disembodied mouth screaming in a jar. <laughs> and you're going to emote very much with that character. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I, I think that, that what we might see now... Um, you mentioned Alice Munro. Alice Munro is, a, is a, an, a short story writer who produces the most intricately drawn characters and is able to do an awful lot of thinking through characters. So I, th- I think we're maybe in... You, you use the word post-postmodern. I think one of, the, one of the things that may be going on at the moment is a certain reclaiming of character as a, as a sort of vehicle for thinking that, that maybe Christine Brooke-Rose didn't allow us to... to, to th- there was a sort of certain almost uh, disreputability about a novel that had <laughs> identifiable characters in it at a certain point in the history of the avant-garde novel, which we've now maybe... It now figures differently. In terms of history, and I suppose this, this is part of the same set of thoughts, that um, arguably the last, the last 15, 20 years has seen an enormous return of the historical novel as, as an art form which is interested in telling history as it happened. <laughs> so, so if you think of somebody like Rushdie as part of that postmodern movement that you were talking about, this is a moment where, where the, the, the sort of efficacy of imagining history uh, emerges from a sense that history is no longer conceivable. Uh, and you know, maybe it has to do with that very reactionary Fukuyama stance that you, that you mentioned. Um, but you know, in, in something like Midnight's Children, we tell a history of India by deliberately uh, 
enjoying the fact that we couldn't possibly get the date of Gandhi's death right, <laughs> um, because really history as it really happened isn't important anymore. And I, th- I think that whatever, we're, whatever moment we're in now, we're in a moment where the novel is trying to re-engage with a set of historical materialities um, and a set of maybe something like reinventing character and how character can be philosophically inventive and experimental. Um, as part of trying to get past whatever phase uh, the late 20th century represented in the, in the Anglophone novel. I, I think in a sense that the, the, the 20th century, uh, the West, changed our, not just for literary people and for readers, but for all of us. The 20th century uh, did become the American century in the end, and it did change our notion of what selfhood was. Mm. It changed our notion of what a character, a human character, was. The movies changed it. Uh, the, the, the political movements through the 60s and 70s changed it. By I think the 20th century really ended in, on 9-11, uh, and the, the 20th century's understanding um, of what a person was and how identity, nationhood, belonging, all of those things kind of came crashing down rather symbolically, I think, at that time. Um, we, and in literary terms, I mean, if you go from as, or Saul Bellow's novel Dangling Man to Don DeLillo's The Falling Man, what you see is a fraying of uh, character all the way through, and a job for the contemporary uh, novel has been, I think, rebuilding character, Characters seemed so frayed in the novel. We're all interested in self-invention and invisibility. We all wrote, wrote books called The Missing, or some of us did. You know, <laughs> but it was actually part of a tradition by then. And I'd rather, um, you know, to take this gentleman's point up, I think that they're related these points. I think that we, were so, so in, we indulge ourselves always. Each generation does. You know, the people around the time of the French Revolution thought that was the most important time in history. The people at the time of the First World War thought that was the most important time in history. And here we are again. But actually, there, there seems to me anyway that there's been a, a really crucial um, mistake made about the end of history. And I think we're seeing, if you look at the news now, we're not at the end of history, we're at the beginning of history in some crucial way. If we think we've described everything and ideologies are defunct, we're not watching the news. Because we're, we're in a new place with that. And actually in Britain, just to stick with that, is a rather under-described territory. I'm always trying to suggest this to creative writing students. They think everything's been written. There are parts of Britain and lives being lived and genders being experienced and supermarkets being inhabited in ways that are completely not on the page. So it's an underdescribed world, and I'm ra- I rather you know, think the opposite. That it's, I mean, post-postmodern might be just a, 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 a way of saying we're back with the same old responsibilities and as, and, and as writers responsible for revivifying a sense of the human um, but it's certainly not at an end I'm rather excited by how resurgent it all is me too oh, I think we've <laughs> maybe got time for two really quick questions if anyone has one, sorry yes the lady at the back, is there anyone else just the lady at the back, that's fine by me okay thanks, uh, my name's Fran Murphy um, I was just wondering, you've talked a lot um, about the philosophical ideas of a novel do you think there's a different level of um, acceptance or interest in theological novels um, you know early the 20th century saw the Graham Greens, the Flannery O'Connors but we don't have that kind of um, there isn't a kind of contemporary version of either of those I would say and I just wonder if you think that that's 
just chance or whether you think that says something about the way we read? No, it does still happen. I mean, I'm always described as a Catholic novelist and always been dragged off to conferences to talk about what it was like being taught by the nuns and what effect it's had on my fiction. <laughs> I can talk for hours on that subject if you want. No, it's, it's, the, 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 I think the theological... It's a very interesting problem, this, because we obviously do live in a much more secular time and people don't identify, at least... In Christian traditions, they don't. I mean, we could, we could have a whole other discussion um, about Islam in relation to this question. Um, but um, certainly, from my own perspective, uh, the, the idea that you, your sense of belief in what is a novel, if not a, a conjuring with the notion of belief, that you're asking people to believe in these characters that you've made or these ideas that you're um, promulgating... Um, the question of belief is always central to the novel, and much as I, you know, I'm not often to be found kissing the feet of the Virgin at the local parish church. Um, nevertheless, I'm still interested in what it is to have a system of belief uh, partner your sense of the novel. Now, that's just a personal thing. I don't know how I could generalise beyond that, though, because there is this enormous resurgence in the question of creativity and belief elsewhere. And I mean, sorry, I was just going to say that. Um, in your own novel, Be Near Me, you, you do explore through the character of a priest yeah. um, the, the various challenges of theological belief. But um, we're using belief in, in a double sense here because, yeah. of course, we have to believe in your character of the priest mm -hmm. as well. So that, but I think it's... Uh, the point that was made here is, is really important that um, a novel is really a story with characters and the, the novelist who puts ideas ahead of the characters is going to quickly be sussed and get into, get into trouble. I know there's somebody here who can name a book. A, sorry, that's what they waving an arm. Like an sorry, would you like to uh, <laughs> send that flying and this will be the last question, I think. Oh, good. I think somebody should write a novel of ideas called The Roving Mic, <laughs> written from the point of view of the microphone. Essentially, the roving mic says around applause. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you, Tony Griffiths. Um, it's just to say that Marilyn Robinson is a, a novelist who probably addresses the questions that you raised mm. in a way, actually, that is a bit similar to George Eliot all that time ago, weaving um, considerations of how to live... Um, a good life, both with and without the absence of, or with and without the idea of God. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a much better example than the one I was going to give, and I think that's a good one on which to end. Can we um, thank our speakers? And here's a reception afterwards. I'm going to repeat that a chance to buy these absolutely marvellous novels. I really can recommend them. Um, I know they're not going to bleep this out, they're both bloody brilliant. <laughs> the Illuminations, the Nassim, uh, Shade of Blue. Do come and join us, and thank you very much for coming on. Thank you.